You've seen the headlines, bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Shashank Joshi, standing in for Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide you with a fresh perspective on the events that are shaping the world. Freemasonry has been one of the most controversial and contagious ideas of the modern age, spreading to every corner of the world since Masons first began meeting hundreds of years ago in the alehouses of London. But in recent years, their numbers have dwindled. And in Britain, social distancing may have put an official stop to clubbing. But under the radar, fans of electronic music are still finding ways to get their fix. Unsurprisingly, raves and pandemics don't mix well. But first... Thailand is bracing for a large anti-government protest tomorrow. The rally is scheduled to take place at a university, which was a site of a student massacre decades ago, and comes after weeks of demonstrations. The best attended was in the middle of August, when more than 10,000 people marched in Bangkok, calling for political change. We students have no choice. We can only come out. We don't want to grow up and have our kids ask us, when the country was facing injustice, what were you doing? The protests started off largely as student movements, different groups of young people. Miranda Johnson is the Economist Southeast Asia correspondent. And we've seen them spread actually into high schools And now they seem to be gaining traction among a larger segment of the population. What can we expect from tomorrow's protests? We've got two different versions of what's going to happen tomorrow. The protesters who are organising the rallies at Tamasat University anticipate 40,000 people coming. The authorities are trying to poo-poo that and say, you know, perhaps only half as many will show up. Even so, they're not taking any chances. There are also thousands of police who are being marshaled to keep the event in order. And we've just heard, actually, that the deputy prime minister, who is an extremely close ally of the prime minister, is going to be running the operation centre that's actually monitoring the anti-government rally. Uh, Miranda, who are these protesters and what's the backstory? How did they get started? There's been frustration building in Thailand for a number of years. The current prime minister and many of his closest henchmen seized power in a coup in 2014. And for a while, they promised that there would be elections, but there wasn't actually one until last year. And even when that election occurred, the current Thai constitution ensured that it wasn't really a level playing field for opposition parties who ran against 
pro-military parties and others who eventually came together in a coalition and won so that Prime Minister Prayut Chan-o-Cha, that former coup leader, could stay in power. So many Thais were very annoyed that they had their liberties curtailed. They waited for many years for an election and then it wasn't fair in the first place. And then on top of all that, a particularly popular party led by a very charismatic young politician, a businessman who basically got fed up with the state of Thailand and decided to become involved in politics. The long and the short of it is that the party Future Forward was dissolved earlier this year in February. And that was when we first started to see some flash mobs, a few street protests and anger starting to build about the current government. What do the protesters want? Is is it just the reinstatement of the party or, or something else? I think the core protesters believe that this is all moved above and beyond Future Forward. A lot of the platform and policies that Future Forward advocated for are things that many of the protesters would like to advance in Thailand, more freedoms, an end to harassing opposition activists. The protesters also want to see parliament dissolved, but crucially they know that dissolving parliament might not do much good until there is a new constitution. Are the protesters unified in what they want? So there is one particularly contentious issue in all of this, and that's the fact that some of the boldest protesters have called for reform of the monarchy. The monarchy in Thailand is deeply revered. It's taboo to criticise the institution. And indeed, a les majesté law provides up to 15 years in prison for anyone thought to be badly insulting the monarch. The current monarch, King Vajiralongkorn, or Rama X, took over from his extremely popular father, who died in 2016. And it's been a bumpy road since then. As a result, for the very first time, protesters are openly criticising some of the things that King Vajiralongkorn has done. In particular, they are unhappy with the way in which he has put crown assets in his own name. And they are also unhappy about the fact that he has taken certain important military units under his personal command. And a lot of those are stationed, importantly, right in Bangkok. So how significant are these protests for the government? The fact that these protests have been growing since the middle of July, slowly but steadily, is problematic. And the longer they go on, the bigger the headache this becomes for the government. The students are persistent, they're not going away, they're not intimidated by the dozens of people who've been arrested for participating or leading. Miranda, what are the army and the government doing about this? So far, it seems to have been a case of wait and see. We've seen um, a few dozen protesters arrested, you know, particularly the leadership, but we haven't seen any really tough crackdown. And given Thailand's history 
of cracking down on student protests in quite a bloody manner. And in particular here, I'm thinking of events in the 1970s. One fear on a lot of people's minds is, you know, what happens when the establishment runs short on patients with all of this? It's difficult to say precisely what will happen, but the chances of dramatic intervention, I think, are you know, never zero in Thailand. Miranda, thank you. Thanks so much. This week on our sister podcast, The Economist Asks, Anne McElvoy has been speaking to David Cameron, the former British Prime Minister who called the 2016 referendum that resulted in Britain's vote to leave the European Union. Mr Cameron told Anne that he's optimistic a trade deal can be salvaged, despite Prime Minister Boris Johnson's threat to override part of the Brexit withdrawal agreement. So I chose to see it in in, in that way, as it were more of a a, a tactical move by the um, British government. And I want the British government to succeed in this negotiation. So I've tried to avoid giving a sort of running commentary on the tactics that they're employing. But I did make very clear that, you know, when it comes to something like this, actually breaching international law by passing an act of parliament in this way should be a last resort and not a first thought. And Mr Cameron was over-optimistic about the outcome of the referendum in 2016. Is he over-optimistic now? He is putting himself more on the optimistic side of the balance sheet there. He says, look, when you put aside the bad temper and the brinkmanship of Boris Johnson at the moment, which has angered a lot of people in the EU and quite a lot of people in the UK as well, he thinks we can get through this. Well, let's see. He also did say to me, however, that he felt that some damage is done along the way. He says he wouldn't have done it like this. But someone will be right. There either will be a deal or there won't be a deal. To hear the full interview with Mr Cameron, just search Economist Asks wherever you get your podcasts. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. We do not make any claims of divine origin or supernatural attributes for Freemasonry. We realize that any organization composed of human beings must necessarily have many imperfections. For almost as long as they've been meeting, the Freemasons have been defending themselves against conspiracy theories. Their blindfolded initiation ceremonies, obscure rituals and strict secrecy seem designed to arouse suspicions, always fiercely denied. One of the first objectives, which is of very great importance at this particular time, is the objective of loyalty and devotion to our government. In 1931, New York's Grand Master proclaimed a different aim of Freemasonry. That it stands for fine purposes and noble principles, and that if its objectives are attained and carried out, it will help a great deal to make this world better. Ninety years on, the impact of the Freemasons is still being debated. The question 
of when, where, and how the Freemasons first came into being is it's still strongly contested. That said, we can, with some confidence, point to the late 17th century or perhaps the early 18th century in London. Jamie Mackay writes about culture for The Economist. One of the main goals, I think, that they were attempting to talk about, questions of morality, questions of philosophy. And in England, at the beginning of the 18th century, we're talking about integrity, friendship, respect and charity. They were longing to build bonds, I would argue, beyond the social and class structures of the time in which they were living. So if they took those ideas of friendship and solidarity and those sorts of values seriously, does that mean they're not as archaic as the rituals make them look? I think this is a fascinating paradox. We do imagine them very largely in relation to these rituals. This was effectively a recruiting tool in the early stages of the organisation. This is not to say that the members did not take them seriously, but in terms of their activities and their evolution, they were really part of the sort of proto-modern energies that were animating Europe. I think a very good illustration of this is perhaps Italy in the 19th century. The unification process which was led by Giuseppe Garibaldi and the Redcoats. Garibaldi himself was a Mason. And the Masons were one of the leading forces in calling for a parliamentary democracy and for a more open political process. Which, how this fits in with the rituals, I think is, is an absolutely fascinating paradox. They're not a religion, but they undoubtedly do a lot of things that religions do. John Dickey is a historian and author of The Craft, A New History of the Freemasons. Lots of their rituals deal with the big questions of life, the meaning of life and how to behave well and the fear of death, all of those kinds of things. They wanted to cover some of the same territory as religion, create a similar kind of fellowship among men. And that, I think, is where secrecy comes in. What underlies that secrecy, do you think? Originally, I think its intention was to bring an element of sacredness to proceedings. If you believe in religious tolerance and you can't bring any theological content to your rituals and your belief system, then secrecy is a wonderful magic dust to spread over everything you do. When you take all that elaborate wrapping of secrecy away, actually what you get is some disarmingly banal moral truths. Be a nice guy, try and find out a bit more about the world, and death's pretty serious business and it kind of puts a perspective on things. But the other thing that the secrecy does, it also created enemies, people who thought the Freemasons, because they were secretive, must be up to no good. Do you think any of that suspicion is warranted? It depends where you go. Yes and no. The history of Freemasonry is a history of schisms and splits and different branches across the world. People just out and out ripping off the idea for their own purposes. Absolutely, in certain times and places, that suspicion about Freemasonry has been justified. People have used the cloak of Masonic secrecy for political conspiracy. I'm thinking of early 19th century Italy, or indeed for crime. 
as in in Italy in the late 70s and early 80s. So in the 18th and 19th century, in, in the face of all this enmity, how did the Freemasons survive and indeed spread? Well, one reason is that they became fundamental as a sort of support network for the British Empire. If you were an imperial soldier or bureaucrat and you were moving around between sort of Cape Town and Calcutta and and Canada, you would find in the lodge when you arrived a ready-made support network, welfare system, even sort of entertainment hub. Freemasonry became one of the most contagious ideas in modernity. As a sort of organisational model, you could call it, brotherhood based on oaths and rituals and a kind of cloak of secrecy, if you like. And you can see the DNA of the Masonic organisational model in things as diverse as the Ku Klux Klan or the Sicilian Mafia or the Mormon Church. Jamie, it is ultimately a patronage group, isn't it? Accepting some at the expense of others. I mean, there's one narrative that can say this is just a group of white, male, middle-class establishment gatekeepers who are in a sense a sort of conservative group protecting their own interests. This is not quite right. Many of these individuals also reached out to include other people from different social classes. So there were members of the aristocracy. There were some literate members of the working class there as well. In the West, at least, organised religion, religious ideas have become less important. Um, Secularism is more important. Class distinctions are perhaps less significant. Do the Freemasons have a future in that context? The question of the future of the Freemasons really does depend on the capacity to which they're able to adapt and transform. There are a few difficulties ahead. The membership is now really declining quite rapidly. Today, there are about 6 million members worldwide. In the 1960s, the total Freemason members in North America were at 4 million. That's now dropped to around about 1 million. The anecdotal evidence is that it's, it's new members who have recently joined are leaving very quickly, which clearly demonstrates there's a, there's a cultural or social gulf between what young future Freemasons are looking for and what the society is able to offer, given the history of the society as something that has historically professed to be a progressive force. The fact that in the 21st century it is still impossible for women to participate within the lodges is something that has to change rather quickly. Jamie, thank you very much. Thank you, Shasha. The nighttime economy has been hit hard by the pandemic. Nightclubs have been forced to close, putting DJs and promoters out of work. But just because the clubs are closed doesn't mean the partying has to stop. In Britain, illegal raves are enjoying something of a revival. Bo Franklin writes about Britain for The Economist. The Met Police has recorded more than a thousand raves in the last few months, and many people are seeing this as kind of a throwback to the late 80s and early 90s. Back then, illegal acid house parties started happening all over the country. What are these raves actually like? 
The traditional stereotype is house techno music taking place in an abandoned warehouse or something. Things are a bit different now. Over the summer, at least, they've tended to happen in big outdoor spaces, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And the kind of music really varies depending on the event too. So now a lot do still play house and techno, but also R&B, drum and bass. A few weeks ago, there was a big rave in a tiny Welsh village called Banwen. Three and a half thousand people turned up, but it's really all because of the closure of nightclubs due to the pandemic. Lockdown has revived that spirit of Acid House and really hardened ravers who have nowhere else to go have turned to illegal parties again. And is the revival of raving entirely a result of the pandemic? Largely, but even before the pandemic, raves were making a bit of a comeback. COVID sort of accelerated that trend. The revival was a result of expensive rents in big cities, which made it harder for nightclubs to put on cheap nights, and also precarious operating licences too. Big venues have had to pass their costs on to clubbers. Entry to Printworks, which is a big factory-turned-club in southeast London, can cost £40 just for a night, and drugs are much less tolerated too. Obviously at an illegal rave, well, they're much cheaper because they don't have to deal with licensing and venue costs, and also there are no rules because it's illegal, so you can do whatever you like. These are, as you say, illegal raves, so how are the authorities cracking down on them? Authorities are having a really hard time trying to put a stop to them because they were happening at such a low level. It wasn't too much of a problem. Obviously, there being a resurgence now, the approach that the police and the government seems to be taking is deterrent. In recent weeks, new fines have been introduced by the government of up to £10,000 for the organisers of these parties. But the big fines aren't having that much of an effect because it's very difficult to work out who's organising them in the first place. And that's because they're so secretive. Locations are often kept quiet until the last minute. And even then, details are only shared with attendees through private channels like WhatsApp and Instagram messages, which is actually quite similar to the 1980s and 90s when people would have to phone a number from a phone box to find out where a party was happening. Are there legal alternatives for UK ravers then? There aren't really at the moment. So in recent weeks, some music events have started up again, but they're much more tame. They're kind of socially distanced concerts happening in traditional venues. Some promoters have tried to organise legal socially distanced raves. I spoke to one organiser who said he put on the first, which was very early in lockdown. He had 750 people apply to come, but could only let in 40 people. Even then, the police still turned up and tried to shut it down until it was explained that it was going on legally. This week, actually, new restrictions, which limit social gatherings, either indoor or outdoors, to six people have come in, making it even more difficult to organise one of these events safely and legally. Six people doesn't sound like much of a rave. Is there a safe way to do this in a pandemic? Honestly, not really. It's obviously very hard to socially distance at a rave. There have been a lot of criticism within the music industry of so-called plague raves in countries where venues have reopened, as they haven't in Britain yet. Nightclubs have been criticised for putting on any kind of events at all, contributing to spikes and resurgences in the virus. One case of this is in South Korea, which did very well at containing the virus. But when things started to reopen, a number of cases were traced back to some nightclubs in Seoul. And that led to a huge amount of criticism within the press and in society as well. Josh Doherty runs legal acid house parties in London. And he's one of the many DJs who are calling people out for throwing plague raves. In the past, we definitely threw parties with dubious legality. We would do these parties in this abandoned tube station, and we had people like Aphex Twin and Goldfrap and Luke Vibert and stuff play. I generally support illegal parties. I think they're a, a vital part of the scene. The illegal parties that are happening now, I think it's pretty irresponsible, to be honest. It's hard because people want a party, and 
people are out of work, DJs, musicians, and, and so on and so forth. But I just think now's not really the time. So it's quite hard to track what kind of effect these raves are having on the spread of the virus. Attendees don't want to register their attendance, they're illegal. But there is already some evidence in Britain of raves increasing the spread of COVID-19. A couple of weeks ago, health authorities in Leeds in the north of England attributed an increase in new virus cases to illegal raves and house parties that were going on. That said, I spoke to somebody who went to the illegal rave at the edge of the Brecon Beacons, and he said he was surprised to see attendees there still using hand sanitizer, and some were even wearing masks as well. Bohu, thank you very much. Thank you, Shashank. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you enjoyed listening to us, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and see you back here on Monday. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds.